0: Welcome to the New Books Network. In
1: our most recent public memory, images of the Prophet Muhammad have caused a great deal of controversy, such as the satirical cartoons in French magazine Charlie Hebdo. The sometimes violent backlash to these images has reinforced a popular narrative that Islam is aniconic and iconoclastic. In the praiseworthy one, the Prophet Muhammad in Islamic Texts and Images published with Indiana University Press, Christiana Gruber demonstrates that, that there is a long, rich history of images of Muhammad from within the Islamic tradition. The styles, themes, and strategies used to represent the Prophet have significantly shifted and altered over time. Gruber synthesizes an extensive archive of images and leads the reader through various thematic patterns, cultural specificities, and unique examples. We are presented with a detailed overview of textual and visual representations of Muhammad that is placed within a deep understanding of the history of Islamic art. In our conversation, we discussed how the iconoclasm narrative has been reinforced, the symbolic prophet versus a historical Muhammad, why there exists no very early images, the first visual representations of Muhammad, the prophet as king and hero, representations of Muhammad's spiritual radiance, images in the context of fraternal Sufi communities, Safavid images in the centering of Shia interpretations of Muhammad, images of Ali, Ottoman visual culture, embodying Muhammad through objects and relics, modern renderings of Muhammad, and public scholarship and the constraints of academic writing. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies a channel on the New Books Network. Without any further delay, here's my conversation with Christiana Gruber about The Praiseworthy One, the Prophet Muhammad in Islamic Texts and Images. Welcome, Christy. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your, uh, your very beautiful and uh, very well written book, uh, The Praiseworthy One. Um, it really as somebody who's not in kind of Islamic art, uh, it's a treat to get a book like this and, and spend so much time with it, because uh, we often don't have these, these images. Uh, but before we get into the book, uh, we always start conversations a little bit about um, how authors come to the study of Islam, um, in your case, uh, Islamic art, uh, what were particular moments uh, or uh, individuals that kind of... Uh, helped you find your path in terms of uh, your interest in Islamic studies?
2: Well, for me, it began when I was 16 years old. I was a junior in high school looking for summer possibilities, and I applied for uh, a fellowship to go study in the Middle East that was offered by the American Council of U.S.-Arab Relations. Uh, Luckily, I was one of 30 students uh, who was selected to go abroad, and my group of 10 juniors, uh, was sent to Tunisia. So at 16, I spent the summer in Tunisia taking Arabic language classes, um, history of the Arab world, and we traveled all around the country. Uh, at that point, that was my only introduction and experience in the Middle East. I had spent my whole life up till that point um, in Europe. I also had lived in uh, Australia uh, and in Yugoslavia, Uh, but I hadn't, uh, and I am from Switzerland, so I hadn't had any languages or experience um, within the Islamic world, but that formative experience really changed the course of my uh, career. I then went back and finished my last year in high school, and once I got to Princeton, I knew I wanted to do art history. Started off in European art history, but then took Arabic and took more Islamic studies courses at Princeton. And by the time my senior year had rolled around, I decided to write a senior thesis on Mamluk metalware. Another really um, important moment for me was the summer of my junior year at Princeton when I interned in the Department of Islamic Art at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And that was really what convinced me to pursue a PhD. I worked with uh, Stefano Carboni uh, at the Met. I was uh, lucky enough to uh, rewrite some of the labels in the galleries and to work on a publication known as the Kutubia Minbar publication. And so when I decided uh, this was really what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing, I couldn't have imagined a a better mentor than Renata Hollett at the University of Pennsylvania. And the the rest was history after that.
1: (laughs) Um, that, that's saying a lot because you've really, you're a very accomplished scholar. Um, you, you've really written a lot and you do a lot of curation. Um, you've also been a, a, a very influential mentor to many people who are now also emerging as important, uh, folks in Islamic art. Um, so, uh, where does this book, the Praiseworthy One, fit in with all of these uh, various things that you, you've done? Um, can you talk a little bit about how this particular book project started to emerge? Um, how does it, and how does it fit into these kind of uh, the, this larger research trajectory that you've you've been on?
2: I would say that this was a long winding road, I think most of us have the same story. There's never a straight forward path to a particular project, and this was my my third book, so it was really more than, I would say, a dozen years in the making. Uh, the seeds for this book um, come from my dissertation on texts and images of the Prophet Muhammad's ascension uh, in the pre-modern period, and when I was writing that dissertation, I was really interested in the intersection between, uh, I would say prose renderings of the ascension and then how the ascension was conceptualized as a at a visual level and so when i was explaining the images i actually saw that there was a development of iconography for the prophet within the mirage or the ascension cycle and i couldn't leave it unaddressed Um, that was just a tiny portion of the dissertation because that was not the main theme and then i started to really think about the ways in which the prophet uh, was described in texts and images, starting from the perspective of the Celestial Ascension. And I started accumulating more information and materials from collections worldwide. And the the more I collected, the more I realized that there was a, a lack of information and a lack of scholarship on the topic. And there were quite a few misconceptions around it. And those misconceptions really flared up in 2005 with the Ulan's Poston cartoon controversy when we first started hearing that quote-unquote Islam bans images, especially that of the Prophet. And then that rhetoric became even more trenchant in the wake of the assassination of the cartoonists at the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris in 2015, and with each one of these events I noticed that the historical materials of Islam were being refracted um, through the lens of these particularly um, gruesome events. So I felt the need to uh, put the data out there, um, to not have it imbricated in ideological wranglings and in a way to allow it to to speak as forcefully as it could for itself. Um, So it's, I would say, a project that was born out of my intellectual interest in both Islamic studies and art history. Uh, When you put those fields together, uh, I think uh, some new findings can emerge, as it does a lot of interdisciplinary work. But then the, the, I would say the earth sort of shifted below us and that meant my research um, was on a wholly new foundation when it came to public perceptions of Islam and I had to make the decision as to whether or not to leave that research of mine behind or to actually make it more accessible. Um, to engage in a form of, I would say, cultural preservation and try to capture as best as I could the really textured history of Islam in its very many different manifestations over the centuries.
1: Yeah, and so uh, th- this long history is interesting because uh, of kind of the the urgency that uh, our, our times have kind of made your work. Um, and you know, you kind of address this uh, later on in in the book, but um, I think it makes sense to to kind of ask it now. Um, is this this kind of popular notion that Islam is iconoclastic? Um, can Can you talk a little bit about where that narrative come from uh, comes from? And then also, you you kind of allude to it, and I I don't know the literature well, so how have scholars uh, kind of? tackled this claim before you? Because you seem like you you are uh, are kind of trying to make an intervention here in the, the scholarly conversation about uh, ideas about iconoclasm.
2: Oh, that's a great question. Because uh, from my point of view, the scholarship around image making in Islam over the past 100 years has been incredibly schizophrenic. Um, on the one hand, uh, you find scholars who want to emphasize what they see as the differential quality of Islamic traditions. And when they wish to to explain how Islam is different from, say, Christianity, they'll latch on to the notion that there are no images of God, no images of the Prophet, that Islam at at best shies away from images, that it's aniconic. And so they'll pick a corpus of materials, if that is their main thrust uh, in their argument, that indeed are an iconic. Um, So you'll look at the Dome of the Rock, um, you'll go inside the building, and a scholar will say, well, look, this is an heir to the Byzantine tradition. We have mosaics, but in this case, the mosaics are non-figural. We have vegetal motifs, we have inscriptions, uh, and uh, ergo, Islam as an abstract entity is anti-image. So for me, the problem with that is that it only captures one element, of Islamic artistic expressions and indeed in many uh, settings and contexts there are no figural images and that is something that one has to speak about. But it doesn't hold true in all settings and all times. And so in other uh, scholarly, uh, I would say, endeavors, you'll see entire books dedicated to the figural imagery of Islam on Persian painting in particular. And there, uh, the early scholars will speak about Persian painting as a, an expression of the genius of Islam, that it has a high point or a zenith in the period of the Timurids, and they liken those productions to the Medici and so on. So you have it's very bifurcated. Um, and my worry with, with both of those approaches is that we have a tendency sometimes to latch onto an argument, and then we cherry pick our data to support that, um, what you would call an inductive rather than a deductive approach. And so uh, one has to find a, a middle path uh, in speaking about the, the artistic traditions of individuals who happen to practice in Muslim-majority lands, and those practices are complex. They vary from time to time. Uh, in one place at one time, you might see an iconoclastic act Say uh, the dynamiting of the Bamiyan uh, Buddhas, but that um, event is deeply implicated in a whole host of other factors that have to do with with politics, that have to do with sanctions, that have to do with minority communities, um, and so we have to look at all those those different elements in the puzzle and not just see the image as uh, as qua image as the problem in and of itself. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, and obviously the book I think uh, really challenges that narrative very, very clearly. Um, so uh, the one of the other contexts that I mean, there's there's tons of literature on Muhammad, and a lot of it uh, tries to get at what we might think of as a historical Muhammad. And uh, your book is is definitely not <laughs> trying to do that. And I, th- I think you use the the language of metaphor. Uh, or a symbolic lexicon. Um, so, can can you talk uh, about um, how the sources that you're looking at? Um, how do they use uh, Muhammad as a, a symbol? And and, and how might uh, these kind of imagined uh, ways of thinking about the Prophet differ from uh, the the type of approach that someone seeking a historical Muhammad might take?
2: That's a really good question. Yeah. When I was uh, starting off with this, you know, many individuals asked me, well, you know, who was Muhammad and what did he look like? Yeah. <laughs> um, and right. And the answer is always, well, I don't know. You know, if there's you know, we have this and that from the text. And there are, of course, many. Scholars out there have been very interested in reconstructing the historical Muhammad based on evidence that can be gleaned from, say, uh, most, most recently one call from the Quran or from the Hadith, right, uh, which are considered the verbal relics of the Prophet. Um, we can glean uh, plenty of biographical information about him from the Sira genre, right, from the biographical texts, but even those were written after his lifetime. And uh, what what's striking to me is even in one's own lifetime, uh, myths emerge about certain personalities. Uh, So Christian, for example, you might have some myths that are wild around you that you might not be aware of that that are propagated among groups of people. Um, And uh, myths emerged about the the Prophet Muhammad already in his lifetime. So you can be mythologized in the living. Um, And so the more you extract an individual, from his or her time, the more that uh, personality can be put through procedures of imagination that can be creative and can be reformulated through the lens of of the present. And to my mind, a much more fruitful exercise when it comes to understanding the creative imaginations that are riveted around the prophet would be to understand the prophet, not only as a historical person that indeed lived in the full light of history but actually as a larger metaphor and embodiment for the community of the faithful. So um, an, an early, for example, exegete might understand the prophet much more in a, in a different way than, say, a medieval Sufi, uh, than, say, a, a member of uh, a militant group today. Um, You have progressive Muslims, you have Salafi Muslims, you have American Muslims and Chinese Muslims, and every community and every individual uh, will look to the Prophet to find a beautiful exemplar to understand how one should live one's best life. Um, And so that can take on all sorts of different iterations, and those iterations get even more multiplied once the imagination is a pictorial one.
0: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Um, so the, much of the book,
1: then, uh, it, it's kind of combination of uh, a hist- chronological order, but also then kind of thematic. Um, and in the very early periods, uh, we we don't have any existing images from the the very early centuries. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about why we don't have any. Um, but also uh, how we we know they existed and what they might have uh, been used for during this period?
2: That's a great question. Yeah, the earliest images of the prophet that survive today uh, date from the 1200s. And so there is this uh, really substantial gap between the uh, the moment of the prophet's life in the 7th century and the earliest uh, extant images that are from the 1200s. We're talking about more than five centuries. This is big lacuna and it is openly uh, talked about in the field of islamic history because this is uh probably the the most major gap uh in terms of artistic production we do have plenty of buildings archaeological sites uh, metalware ceramics from those centuries but not really painting one possibility and this is the one that is uh, uh that you hear about most often is that it, it's possible that images of the Prophet uh, had been made, um, did exist from those centuries, between the 700s and the 1200s, but it's possible that they were destroyed uh, when the famous uh, House of Wisdom, a library in Baghdad, was uh, uh, destroyed uh, under uh, the Mongols in 1258, 1258 being a major marking point here. Um, that is a possibility considering that the the, the real uptick in the, the corpus of extant images of the prophet dates from the early 1300s. So that's one possibility. And it's, um, it's uh, I wouldn't say extremely likely, but it's a, it's a possibility. The other is that there might not have been much of a tradition of representing of the prophet during those first five centuries. And that in reality, the the genesis or the beginning of religious imageries dedicated to Muhammad is in fact uh, attributable to the reign of the Ilhanids, uh, these Mongol uh, rulers of Iran uh, that brought with them tra- traditions of figural imagery um, from uh, Buddhist traditions of Central Asia in particular. So I would say that it, it's Potentially a combination of both factors.
1: Um, you you also talk about uh, I think you call them textual images, uh, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. What so what are some of these narratives where we hear about images uh, and, and what do they say?
2: Uh, yeah, I call those uh, uh, picturations. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, or textual pictures, and uh, there are a number of uh, textual narratives that, in fact, talked about images of Muhammad. And uh, the most common of those narratives is known as the the narrative of Heraclius, uh, the Byzantine emperor, and there are variants uh, of this narrative. But the basic gist is that uh, the Byzantine emperor Heraclius had a chest um, of sorts with drawers in it, and therein uh, he preserved figural portraits of the great prophets um, of the Abrahamic traditions in particular. And the, uh, the prophets' emissaries went to Heraclius, um, and when he opened the drawer, we're told he saw an image, and Muhammad's companions did as well, uh, we're not told what the image looked like, although there are insinuations that it was um, radiant, that it exuded light, uh, whereupon the companions of the prophet who had been sent to the court of Heraclius burst into tears, recognizing uh, Muhammad. Um, and then usually the tale ends with uh, Heraclius' um more or less converting uh, to Islam. So this is one of the very interesting topoi, um, what, what you would call a conversion narrative. And there are uh, different kinds of conversion narratives out there uh, in, in the Islamic tradition, both conversion and uh, initiation and foretelling narratives. Um, this one, in a way, predicts the the fall of Constantinople and, and the rise of, of Muslim power around the Mediterranean. And the conversion itself occurs thanks to a figural image of the Prophet Muhammad. So it's a very powerful tale that not only does not shy away or prohibit figural imagery, but actually sees figural imagery as a potential catalyst for uh, luring, converting, um, and um, drawing uh, individuals of other faiths to the cause of Islam.
1: Now, when we do start to uh, have a kind of archive of images, um, what what are those earliest visual representations of Muhammad look like? Um, and what do they tell us about this this cultural context in which they emerge?
2: So the earliest images of the Prophet Muhammad uh, tend to represent him as a king who is sitting on a throne. And this was, was something that dawned on me only years um, into the making of this project. It was uh, a struggle, uh, as you mentioned, to to find the right structure, because I didn't want the book to be uh, solely chronological. I wanted to understand major moments or pivots or clusters of images. And it just so happened that this earliest imagery uh, represents Muhammad as uh, an enthroned king. And so I had to ask myself well, why in these earliest images does Muhammad look so much like a regal figure who's holding audience in a court-like setting. And so there I, I played around with uh, notions of kingship, um, of welcome, of, of having a, a court uh, of sorts. Um, a who is at that court? Um, is the prophet seated alone? Or is potentially Ali uh, sitting next to him? Or is the Ahl al-Bayt also contained on the, on the throne? And what does that that mean in, term, in terms of imagining a prophet king with his uh, larger family or offspring? And can we then start to even see the seeds of, uh, of, of sectarian differentiation? And if not, then is it a more inclusive view of what Prophethood might look like if we're not to draw sectarian lines too strictly. Um, in the early period, the other thing I noticed with these earliest images of Muhammad enthroned is that he is fully represented in terms of his uh, physical attributes and his facial features. So he is a, a human being, uh, fully in the flesh. Um, you can see his eyes, his nose. Um, you can see his prophetic tresses, right? His his hair. He typically wears a turban, and he does not have an aureole. He does not exude light. But there are some manipulations in those images that make it clear that this is not just an earthly king. This is an earthly king with prophetic attributes. And so typically in those images, you'll see Muhammad enthroned, surmounted by flying angels that hold a canopy like ribbon above him. Um, Sometimes they can be holding light rays above him or they might be holding a vessel, uh, pouring maybe a sacred substance or um, a kind of uh, aromatic essence upon him. Uh, So these angelic beings um, show to us that this is a prophet um, uh, who has been selected by God through these angelic proxies. Um, that he's been given the light of God, uh, that he has a a prophetic scent from paradise, but none of those more metaphorical or allegorical elements are actually um, embedded in his physical self and exuding from there. So they're what I call external signs of his prophecy that are added to an otherwise earthly, uh, kingly scene of enthronement. So I refer to those scenes as uh, Muhammad the prophet king, And beyond that, uh, from a political point of view, I think it is important to think through those images because those images craft a notion, not just of prophecy for Muhammad, but uh, royalty for those uh, monarchs who are actually uh, commissioning these images. So in a sense, Muhammad indeed is envisioned as a king, but a ruling monarch could be envisioned as a prophet as well. So I think the engagement is bilateral, and uh, the strength of rulership can also uh, be carried over to a ruling monarch who himself is seen as the shadow of God on earth.
1: Now, the the next kind of uh, theme or pattern or cluster you look at is uh, a kind of heroic prophet um, so when and where did this uh, motif uh, start to emerge? Um, what strategies were deployed to mark Muhammad as a hero?
2: Mm-hmm. yeah, there I was very inspired by Campbell's work on on the hero um, because in many world traditions, uh, the the various motifs that accompany notions of our herohood are pretty similar. um and, In the case of Muhammad, some of those same uh, topoi can be found as well. So a hero is born at a felicitous conjunction in time. A hero has the markings of herohood already at the very beginning of uh, his or her career. Um, A hero has to go through trials and tribulations. And not only does he have to survive them, he has to come out of those trials um, stronger um, and more agile. Um, he also, a hero has to be recognized as a hero after he's initiated into herohood in some fashion. And a hero has to be capable of supernatural feats. Um, in the case of Muhammad ascending to the heaven or splitting the moon or surviving the the cracking open of his chest. Uh, and then the, the hero has to um, make an exit in some fashion. So, All of those tropes uh, I I found in uh, the biographical tales of the prophet, and they're also in the corpus of images as well. So if we are to start from the the very beginning of his life, uh, of course, when he's born, then the the marks of herohood are already there um, in the tales and in the images, uh, whereby we're told that uh, when his mother was pregnant, that she exuded a light from her belly. Um, that when Muhammad was born, she received a, a revelation that he had to be called Muhammad, uh, which is a praise name, the, the, the praised one or the praiseworthy one. So even our hero has a, a, a praise name. Um, and uh, when he's born, all sorts of interesting things uh, are said to happen. Uh, a light is exuding from his body. The uh, idols at the Kaaba come collapsing and uh, break to smithereens. In other tales, um, especially from Iranian lands, we're told that uh, the arch of of Husra in K'teziphon comes crumbling down. So these are sort of end of old world order um, symbols that that are smitten in, in the wake of the coming into the world of this hero. So that, that is one sort of heroic bursting into being that you see applied to the prophet. Um, and another sort of major heroic motif for Muhammad is his celestial ascension as well, where he's able to, to rise uh, through the skies in the span of one night. He gets to meet the angels, the prophets. He has an intimate colloquy with God without any intermediaries. Um, He gets to visit heaven and hell um, so that he could tell his community upon his uh, return of the rewards that await uh, the faithful and, of course, um, the various punishments um, for those who are either not of the faith or who commit a a range of sins as well. So I I found those particular uh, topoi particularly interesting. And as it turns out, those are the ones that are most often put to picture as well. Yeah, from the 1300s onward.
1: Now, um, the, you kind of uh lead into this um idea of Muhammad as a light, um, and you explore this more um in the next chapter, which uh you focus on what you call mystical visions of the prophet. Um, so the, this idea of uh the the light of Muhammad, um, how does this get, or what is this, and then how does this get uh? visualize what kind of iconographical devices were used to uh, represent this idea of Muhammad's radiance. Yes.
2: Yeah, so the, the light of Muhammad, otherwise known as a Nur Muhammad or Nur in Muhammad in a more Persian genitive construct, uh, the light of Muhammad is a, a very old um, uh, concept, I would say. Um, and you can find it across different fields of Islamic literature. Um, If you go all the way back to the Quran, there are a number of verses that speak about light, about nur, uh, the most famous being Ayat or the verse of light. Um, This is uh, the most important of the verses that touch upon the notion of a light glowing in a lamp, neither of the east nor the west. Um, We also talk uh, here in the Quran of God, uh, sending a book and a light to his people to lead them out of darkness. Um, exegetes, um, so interpreters of the Quran, uh, especially those of uh, a spiritualist or Sufi leaning, tended to interpret the word nur or light as the prophet Muhammad. So if if you were to read the verse, um, God sends a book and light to, his, uh, to the faithful, the book is the Quran and the light is Muhammad. Um, So Muhammad oftentimes, and not just in, you know, Sufi cultures, uh, was thought of as embodied light, as an entity that was sent uh, by God to mankind to impart enlightenment, uh, to um, give lessons of the faith, to lead them out of darkness, to lead them to salvation, to intercede on their behalf. Um, And so that is... Uh, a motif that is prevalent across all these texts um, there's an uptick in the light of Muhammad motif especially um, in the medieval period um, the 11th century onward for Islam uh, and it's a key motif in, in Sufi literature in particular uh, where Sufis might be able to contemplate the light of Muhammad uh, internally or spiritually in some way now the, the paintings that really engage with the light of Muhammad, uh, as it so happens, are medieval and post-medieval, and they can be tethered to a more Sufi environment, especially Herat in modern-day Afghanistan during uh, the last quarter of the 15th century, the, the Timurid period. Uh, this is the, the, the period of uh, Jami, for example. So those paintings engage with the topic of the Nur Muhammad by representing the Prophet as a, a blaze of light. So, either Muhammad is f- fully represented in the flesh um, with facial features, uh, but is crowned by a flaming halo or aureole, or that flaming aureole can in fact take over his facial features, which you can see in fact all in the image on the cover of the book where even Muhammad's veil looks as if it's a flame. Uh, And so the the heart, if you like, of this uh, blazing, exuberant light is actually thought to be incubating, so to speak, from the head of the prophet in the medieval period. In later centuries, especially in the area of Kashmir, Today, 18th and 19th centuries, Muhammad is represented only as a bundle of light, um, and so the aureole will subsume his entire physical uh, casing of sorts, And that's really the, the last step in the process of um, metaphorically imagining Muhammad, not just as a human being, but as light incarnate.
1: Now, um other images were important within a, a Sufi context and uh you you bring some examples about uh uh their use in kind of brotherhood communities. Um so what, what were the purposes of these images within in that context of uh, kind of master disciple spiritual teaching?
2: Yeah, these uh images that I mentioned uh which emerge especially during the last quarter of the 15th century in Herat, tend to be part of um, fraternal milieus, especially of the Naqshbandi uh, order. Um, I find it interesting that even the term uh, Naqshband means uh, to to bind yourself to a Naqsh, uh, to an image. So, uh, you know, in a way, the Naqshbandiya, is really a, a binding of the image fraternity, at um, etymologically speaking. So uh, the Naqshbandiya, this, uh, this Sufi brotherhood, this tariqa, is known to have engaged in a number of different practices uh, through which a, a pupil could become much more closely connected to his master. So the master pupil, or the peer murid, Uh, connection uh, had to be extremely strong and the master could be not just his immediate master but master going through the the lineage or the line of masters going back to the Ur master or the first master and that was always imagined uh, as the Prophet Muhammad. So in the Naqshbandiya, in that brotherhood there are two practices that really caught my eye. Uh, One was the notion of Rabita which is establishing a connection uh, a linking or a chaining. And it's very clear that uh, there were there were multiple ways of creating a connection or a binding, if you like, to a master. Uh, one was to imagine that individual in your mind's eye to maybe have dreams of that master. Oftentimes, masters, including the Prophet Muhammad, are said to come to pupils in their dreams. And uh, to reveal certain things uh, about uh, the, the realm of, uh, of the mysterious, the realm of the unseen. So I see those images from within those Sufistic milieus as establishing a rabata, uh, uh, an actual bilateral exchange between the viewer who's um, uh, a murid in a way and the representation of the peer, which is Mohammed and his entourage potentially. So Rabita is one of those practices of chaining or linking or bilateral exchange. The other that is very prevalent also in the Naqshbandiya is the notion of Tawadju, which means facing, going face to face. In uh, those particular Sufi midyus, it's believed that if you cogitate strongly enough upon your master, if you have a dream, then you can come face to face with that individual, through sustained spiritual contemplation, which uh, can include practices of dhikr uh, right, of uh, remembrance, uh, collective remembrance, remembrance that is um, in a group that can be allowed or can be uh, uttered in, in a very isolated uh, chamber known as a, a halwa. You know, you can be all by yourself in a small chamber in isolation and you can come face to face with your master, or you can be in the collective remembrance a scenario uh, and you can engage in a collective dhikr and then a, a master can come to that community. So these images could have been viewed as a way of coming face-to-face with the prophet, um, a literal face-to-face. Um, they could be used by an individual person um, in, a, in a private environment or they could. Uh, these images in manuscripts could have been used in more social arenas such as a mejlis or a coming together uh, for the purposes of reading, the purposes of recollection. And so I tend to also think about these illustrated books uh, wherein these paintings do survive as potentially going from hand to hand in in a mejlist setting so in a in a group setting and the fact that oftentimes in these paintings Mohammed is shown as the ultimate, Master in a medulla setting, in a, in a seated scenario, uh, may reflect the actual practices of establishing Rabita and Tawaju with the Prophet at this time.
1: Now, um, <clears throat> one big shift uh, in some of the imagery that you, you, you point to is under the Safavids. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how uh, visual culture operated under the Safavids? Uh, what kind of images we find, and and what their function was in this context?
2: Yeah, the Safafids uh, were uh, extraordinary patrons of uh, illustrated manuscripts, and there are many images of the Prophet Muhammad uh, within the illustrated manuscripts um, of the Safafid tradition, in particular over the course of the fifteen hundreds. And what was really striking to me when I started looking at that material is that really the earliest surviving evidence for the use of the facial veil uh, really must be attributed to the Safavids, to the er early 1500s. Um, So it seems that the facial veil is an invention of Shah Ismail I, the first uh, ruler of the Safavids. And it's not the only thing that happens. Uh, At the same time, Muhammad tends to be outfitted with a, a special turban that has a, a tall rod, and that turban is known as the Taj-e-Haidari, or a Haidar's crown, and it's uh, essentially Shi headgear. The rod represents the, the imams. So at the same time as the facial veil emerges, we see sort of Shiified headgear applied to the Prophet. And then on top of that, oftentimes we also see the facial veil also applied to Ali, and at times also the imams. So for me, the question then became, rather than, say, the facial veil uh, was articulated as a way to camouflage Muhammad's facial features in order to avoid a veristic representation or the representation of his facial features, the question, the more pressing question for me, became, well, 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 what are the the other reasons um, that the facial veil would emerge uh, under the early Safavid in the tandem of the taj e and the facial veil also applied to Ali. And so if you look uh, carefully at Shi'i texts in particular, um, uh, there are all sorts of hints and insinuations that the facial veil is about hiding in plain sight, the, the notion of taqiyya. Um If you hide the facial features of Muhammad, he becomes uh, an increased mystery. He's too brilliant to behold. At the same time, you're not quite sure who that who that individual is behind the facial veil, and if that individual is wearing the Tajhajdari, could that individual be also Shah Ismail? Mm-hmm. And uh, we do know that uh, Shahs, uh, the Safavid Shahs, among them, uh, liked to play with this double entendre: uh, 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 prophet-like kings or kings that come close to being. Um, let's say, the new Ali, or the new sort of manifestation, the new theosis, right, uh, of God on earth. And so the facial veil makes you question whether you're looking at Muhammad or you're looking at a Safavid monarch. And um, if the facial veil is also applied to Ali, then that suggests that Ali partakes in the same uh, veiled mystery and therefore prophetic rank as the Prophet Muhammad himself. So it allows for an elevation of Ali, himself, uh, which is um, an effort that is uh, uh, sustained um, in Shi textual production and um, and there's certainly a flourishing of that in the Safavid period as well.
1: Now um, this is uh, kind of um, connected uh, in a, a contradistinction between the Ottoman context uh, where we have uh, kind of also new developments in uh, kind of the representation of Muhammad. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what's happening in, uh, in the the Ottoman visual culture? Um, how were, um, kind of multi-sensory images or objects used, uh, in in that context? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, in the Ottoman, uh, context, especially I would say after the 17th century, which did, um, the, the late 16th century witnessed also, uh, pictorial imagery within uh, illustrated manuscripts, the Sierra Nebi or the Life of the Prophet being the chief example of uh, pictorial images within a manuscript context. But what is most striking in uh, the Ottoman context, especially from the 1700s onward, is a shying away from illustrated manuscripts and figural paintings to uh, a whole new, innovative way of thinking about Muhammad through synecdoche, through parse through allegory. So, for example, oftentimes you see the production of prayer books known as du'a names, and in those prayer books you'll see representations of Muhammad's relics. Uh, so the Ottomans were very interested in representing Muhammad's robe, um, his hair strand, um, his prayer rug, his sandals. They were also very interested in collecting those objects per se. And the Topkapı Palace remains today the major repository of the relics of the Prophet Muhammad. You, if you go to Topkapı, uh, you'll find um, his footprints on stone that are attributed to the Prophet Muhammad. You'll find his mantle, his robe. Uh, and you'll find uh, hair strands uh, within uh, transparent containers. So, in the Ottoman period, there's an urge to collect these, um, by far and large, contact relics. These are secondary relics of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, say for say the you know the the strands of his beard, which are the the, the protein uh, exuviae, right uh, of the of the Prophet Muhammad's body. So they're not like body parts relics like you find in Christian traditions. So these are objects that are touched by the baraka, by the blessing of Muhammad. And they become central to some of the religious practices of the Ottoman uh, royal uh, household. Um, So for example, uh, the Ottomans were in the, in the practice of touching and kissing Muhammad's footprints Uh, from time to time. Those footprints, just like uh, the mantle would be washed. Uh, the water runoff would be collected and kept in a uh, little vials uh, to be then um, mixed into other flasks or other liquids to create a, an elixir or a curative potion of sorts. Um, this is what you would call tiban nebi or uh, the medicine of the prophet. Um, at other times, these little vials would be used to break uh, the fast during the month of Ramadan. So what I find interesting in those practices is that it's no longer about contemplating an image. It's about materially and physically interacting with uh, objects, um, material objects, um, through rubbing, through kissing, and not just gazing. And oftentimes that involves also the practice of ingestion, um, uh, ingestion especially of water that has touched the the prophetic baraka. So that made me think of well, how can you come into contact with the Prophet Muhammad? One way to to do that is to activate your your inner Muhammad to become almost epigenetically Prophet like through practices of imbibing and ingestion as well.
1: Now, um, you you take us all the way to the the modern period uh, in the book, and. Um... You know some some of the stuff that's happening in, in the recent past is uh is really interesting because it is both kind of innovating but also then kind of making taking you know new takes on these these older traditions um so can you can you talk a little bit about uh how do images of the prophet uh operate today where do we find them uh what do people do with them um yeah
2: yeah that last chapter is the messiest chapter of the book <laughs> As you will have noticed, you know, all the other chapters um, feel much more cohesive uh, because the, the, the clusters are um, pretty coherent in and of themselves. And I really struggled with that last chapter because I, I wanted the last chapter to be coherent. And then I realized I was trying to force the material into a coherence that in fact was not there. Um, and so what I'm trying to do with that last chapter is to capture the messiness of, of the modern period because there is no one tale uh, to tell. You know, some traditions um, reiterate and reassert uh, the, the pictorial images of the Ihanid period. Others prefer to turn to the Ottoman tradition. Others are inspired by calligraphic traditions whereby Muhammad is a calligram. Others prefer to look at Muhammad as uh, a synecdoche, uh, taking his sandal print as, a, as a, a key stand him or a logo, if you like. Um, and so these these modern experiments in uh, representing the Prophet are nothing if not a mixed bag. Um, and that has been the case at least up until, I would say, the end of the 20th century. And after that, the picture t- tends to change pretty dramatically yeah, in the wake of our our cartoon controversies because it those two events of 2005 and 2015 a decade apart have really altered the course of, of the of the practice of imagining the prophet because perforce now uh, we have trouble looking at that, those traditions without in a way these modern debacles coloring our perception, and so now there's great, great hesitation uh, to to make images of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, precisely because of the rather trenchant narratives that have emerged over the course of the past 15 years. Um, so I would say uh, that's uh, a damage that has been done, but it's it's also part of the larger tale, and I think it says a lot to us about what are some of the the very current. Uh, circumstances that can lead to innovations that we might not be aware of also that stretched uh, back uh, in the centuries. 1501 being a a major marking point there for the rise of the Safavids marked a a huge uh, switch in the tradition of representing the prophet. The veil came, that was more or less invented then and became a staple. So perhaps then we have a a new staple in another world event um, right now, uh, with the net result being uh, an increasing shying away from representational images of the Prophet Muhammad, so the tale is not over. Uh, we are just in a moment, and it will be very interesting to see what happens next.
1: Yes, uh, speaking of which, uh, it would be great to hear what you're working on next. Uh, mm-hmm. Could could you tell us a little bit about uh, projects you have underway, things you you hope to do in the in the near future?
2: Yeah, I would say that right now, um, very presently, as we record uh, this uh, lovely interview, uh, we are in the throes of a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> so y- y- I've gone from uh, scholar to uh, chair of a department to, you know, uh, managing a, a very large uh, crisis yeah. um, in our academic worlds. So I'm, I'm learning a lot um, in the process. And What's been interesting for me is to really think about also artistically and creatively how individuals from Muslim-majority lands have coped with moments of crisis, um, especially epidemics, Mm. uh, historically. And so one piece I've just written, which is short, um, is entitled uh, The Arts of Healing and Protection in Islam, Historical Objects in a Pandemic Moment, Mm. um, where uh, I really think through the different uh, tools and technologies and creative responses uh, that that Muslims have had when faced with disaster and disease. And so there I'm very interested in amulets and especially anti-plague amulets, amuletic designs, magical medicinal bowls, and talismanic shirts. And it's possible that this will turn into a bigger project. Um, I'm lulling the idea of maybe launching a pandemic arts a series of uh, public essays and maybe roping in my colleagues from multiple fields across the world. So this is something that's uh, unfolding right now, which, you know, uh, might seem dated whenever uh, this interview um, is available, but longer term, I have two book projects uh, that are unfolding right now. Um, one is uh, on image fiascos, uh, which is about um uh, fighting ideologically through images and determining the place of Islam in global visual cultures, and I have a, a number of case studies uh, for that. Um, this is a more of a of a modern uh, project, and the second uh, book project uh, is uh, entitled uh, "The Matter of Islam: um, Art Vibrancy and Religion," and it's uh, more or less an eco critical art history take on uh, all sorts of artistic objects, architectures, uh, and traditions that are riveted to the natural world uh, within Islamic traditions. So these are two uh, longer term uh, book size projects of mine. Um, a couple chapters are, you know, sketched out and there's some writing here and there, but I will have to uh, put that, you know, sort of on low boil uh, mm-hmm. since I'm I'm chair for three years. So yeah. Um, it won't be f- for now, but I found that with the praiseworthy one, um, incubating a book for a decade um, is a pleasure in and of itself. Um, when the book comes out, that's certainly a joy, um, but it the project is then behind you. And so I think, and this is really for all the academics out there, uh, the, the real treasure of, of tenure in a way is that uh, the affordances that it allows you to concentrate very, very deeply um, to to dig, uh, take the time uh, to really mull through the sources, to synthesize them well, to test structures for books, uh, let them go if they don't work. I threw away an entire chapter of this book that wasn't working. Hmm. The mogul chapter was just not working. There was not a cluster there. And uh, no matter how much I wrestled with it, it, it you know, it just... Uh, didn't pan out so um, I'm I think that hopefully in the future years we'll feel less pressed and rushed uh, to publish or perish because uh, in the end uh, the, the product has to be there to stay and what really inspires me in my scholarship is um, a very short piece that Carl Ernst published in uh, the International Journal of Middle East Studies some years ago where he's uh, asking us, nay, begging us to forego jargon, to think about dropping diacritics, um, to not hide behind um, too much theory. In other words, to engage in what he calls stealth analysis. And so what is my guiding ethos now is that I want extremely deeply rooted, well macerated scholarship uh, where I've had the time to think through a wide variety of materials and sources to test um, structures, to fail at them, to throw them out the window and to get a writing that is sturdy and that may seem simplistically clear, but is hopefully much more complex than what the eyes might see at first glance. And that in in itself is an incredible challenge I found because It's meant undoing uh, years of of training at the graduate level where you might think that the more jargon and the more theory you deploy, the more intelligent you seem. But once you take away that cladding, you have to be able to stand behind um, the evidence, its presentation and your argument for decades to come. And that means um, putting yourself out there and being willing to stand by an argument uh, in a way unclad by these fineries. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the the unlearning of the academy.
2: Mm-hmm. It's been uh, it's been very difficult, um, but you know, those uh, op-ed pieces I, I wrote in Newsweek, uh, which went through many many different cycles of editing with journalists, uh, taught me a lot about um, how you should try to write for public audiences while still being beholden to the the standards of the academy, um, and I think. It's going to be important for all of us, including Islamicists, to to wrangle with that. you know what is the meaning? Um, what are our duties as Islamic uh, uh, historians and experts of Islamic studies to not only really do our work but to make that work um, uh, available um, and understandable to those who would be interested. Uh, I think that's um, that is definitely a duty for some, maybe not for others, but it certainly, a challenge that we need to be thinking about as a collective.
1: Well, thank you for doing the the work, and thank you for uh, for writing this this wonderful book.
2: Thank you so much for reading it. It's been a real pleasure. When you write, you know, books, it's a very lonely affair, and it's always surprising to me once a book is out that somebody is reading it. So thank <laughs> you.
1: <laughs> Thanks again for listening to new books in Islamic studies. That was my conversation with Christiana Gruber about The Praiseworthy One, The Prophet Muhammad in Islamic Texts and Images, published with Indiana University Press in 2019.